people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. From the director of Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah. Hello, baby! Clarence? I'm a married man, buddy. <laughs> a con man. Ask him if he got the letter. Did you get the letter? What letter? Hey, I'm so talking to you. I know, Tom. Tell him we gotta go. <laughs> a call girl. You call for a day? Huh? Ah! I'm out of that. She a four-alarm fire or what? She seems very nice. Doing in LA anyway, huh? And a suitcase full of trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Now, all that stands between them and their wildest dreams. Find out who this wing and a prayer artist is and take him off at the neck. Are 60 cops. 40 agents. Oh, man, this kid Clarence, I like him. 30 mobsters. I haven't killed anybody since 1984. And a few thousand bullets. We're all gonna die here. These are cops. Put it down. Put it down. Put it down. Christian Slater. Patricia Arquette. Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken. Slow it down, man. In a Tony Scott film. I think what you did, I think what you did was so Not since Barney and Clyde have two people been so good at being bad. True Romance. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Andrew Rausch. Hello. Also joining us is Mr. Kendall R. Phillips. Thanks, Mike. I just want to point out, I had to come all the way from the highways and byways of Syracuse, New York, to Motor City, Detroit, to find my true romance with you two. Thanks for having me back on the show. On this episode, we are looking at Tony Scott's 1993 film, True Romance. Based on a screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, the film stars Christian Slater as Clarence, a comic book store clerk from a non-existent version of Detroit, and Patricia Arquette as Alabama, a hooker with a heart of gold. After killing her pimp, the two go across country to Hollywood to sell a stolen suitcase of cocaine. Well, actually, the cocaine, not the suitcase. I don't know if they sell the suitcase, but they definitely sell the cocaine. Right. Does the suitcase come with it, or do they have to pay extra? That's it. And what happens to the suitcase? I feel like the suitcase was left out. I want to know more about the suitcase's story. I know. Maybe we can have like a whole series on Disney Plus or something just about the suitcase. We are going to be ruining this film as we discuss it. So if you haven't seen True Romance, turn off this podcast and go watch it. It's easy enough to find, folks. We will still be here. So, Andrew, when was the first time you saw True Romance and what did you think, sir? 
So I actually saw these movies out of order. So, you know, I've written three books on Tarantino. So I, as I told you guys before, I'll be the Tarantino stan here. I saw Pulp Fiction the day it opened and it blew my mind. Okay. Then I find out, oh my God, this guy has more movies. And even though Tony Scott technically is the director, whatever, but this ends up being the second movie, Tarantino related movie that I see. So I saw it not too long, probably a month after Pulp Fiction came out and knocked me on my ass. I love it. I love it. This is probably my second favorite Tarantino-related movie behind Pulp Fiction. And Kendall, how about yourself? I actually saw them in order. I had seen Reservoir Dogs at an indie theater in Kansas City, had absolutely loved it, just blown away by it, had heard True Romance was written by Tarantino. Of course, that was part of the release strategy was like, oh, this movie has indie cred, so we'll put True Romance out. I saw it then in the theater. And again, at the time was really, really impressed, just thought it was part of that whole 90s moment of sort of grungy, indie-like kind of heist film. So I I was really, I really loved it at the time. I definitely saw these in order. Obviously, I didn't see my best friend's birthday for many years, but I did see True Romance when it opened at the theater, had seen Reservoir Dogs. Actually, the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs was on a bootleg VHS that was bought off the streets of New York City. Oh, those were the days. And then fell in love with that, managed to see it at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor. And then when True Romance came out, I mean, we were like pigs in slop. If you like Tarantino, the early 90s were just the golden age because you had Reservoir Dogs in 92, you had True Romance in 93, you had both Pulp Fiction and Natural Born Killers in 94. I mean, this was just a time to be alive, ladies and gentlemen. And I think what Four Rooms comes out right after that, well... We don't count that one. Throw that out. I know. Now when he says that he's going to stop after 10 movies, I'm like, are you counting my best friend's birthday? Are you counting Four Rooms? Like... Yeah, but whatever. He he has his own math. He can't spell. He can't add. That's okay. We love him anyway. But yeah, I really enjoyed True Romance when I saw it the first time. And I remember I read the screenplay for it because it used to be a thing that you could find screenplays for his stuff relatively easily until the big court case came down a few years ago. Before that, you could read these beforehand, and I'm pretty sure I read True Romance before I saw it, and I think I read the version, I don't even think I read the version that's all out of order. I think I read, because there are at least two versions of the script that are in chronological order, but I think the original earliest draft of it was out of order, and hiding from the audience what happened with Clarence and Alabama and how they meet and the murder of Drexel. You kind of pick up with Drexel at the beginning. Yeah, you get Clarence and the that poor woman who just plays prostitutes and everything. She was kind of a streetwalker in The Crow, or at least maybe not a woman of good moral standing, and definitely was a prostitute in Unforgiven. And here she is hanging out at this bar. I don't think she's a call girl in this one, but she's definitely not interested in Elvis in this one either. So who needs her? So the original draft of the script, even before that, is called The Open Road, which is after the Kerouac book. Now, um, and that had Natural Born Killers and True Romance together as one story, which sounds insane. And I've never seen that version, but it was confirmed for me by a lot of his friends. I did get to talk to him, but we had a lot of other things to talk about. We did not get to that. 
But that one is just sounds bizarre to me, but I think it's a screenwriter finding his legs, you know, and that's the story of true romance, but Clarence is also a screenwriter. So he's writing the script that is natural born killers along the way, which explains why we have the parallels between true romance and natural born killers. And, you know, he's always talked about, he has his real world movies and then he has his movie world movies, which are, you know, these slick versions and, so, you know, obviously Clarence and Alabama are the real world characters. And then Natural Born Killers characters are the movie characters. Yeah, he does tell an interesting story, Tarantino, on the uh, one of the commentary tracks for True Romance, where he talked about how he would try to write screenplays and he would get 30 pages in and then either think of a better idea, a different idea, or for whatever reason, it would just kind of die on the vine. And it really took that open road for him to be able to get past that. And I think he said he ended up with some 500-page book at this point. It had to be like a Tolstoy novel, you know? And where's HBO? Come on, option that original script. This could be a whole, like, 10 seasons, like The Sopranos. Come on. Yeah, I'm not sure how well the timeline changes, the the original version. I'm not sure how well that plays. We'll talk about that in the second half of the show, because there is a fan edit out there of as close to that as you're going to get, you know, that's probably not exactly what that screenplay was like, but we can definitely talk about that. But for this, I mean, this is an interesting case. I mean, this was, like I said, he had just made Reservoir Dogs. He's working, putting together Pulp Fiction. And actually before that, he was, because Tony Scott had read both Reservoir Dogs and True Romance, depending on who you ask, he read them both on a plane or he just read them or he got past Reservoir Dogs and said, I want to do this. And then Tarantino's like, no, that one's mine. You can direct this one. So he's given Tony Scott his, his scraps, basically. <laughs> Did you guys know that William Lustig was supposed to direct this at one point? When Samuel Hedida had the rights to this, it was supposed to be Bill Lustig that was going to direct it. And so when Tarantino approached the producer, Bill Unger, about it, he didn't. he left all that out. So he shows it to him, he gets excited, and he goes, but there's a catch once they're interested. And he's like, you know, another, someone else has optioned it, and it's this guy, Samuel Hadida, this French producer. So then they had to finagle that out of his hands to make the movie, smartly duplicitous in a way, because, I mean, you know, because it's obviously a step up in quality. But I mean, could you imagine what that would have been like? That would have been really gritty. I was just writing today about Maniac, and Maniac is like ridiculously gritty. This could have been really fun in that way. I don't think you would have had, you know, Bebop, Balua, or whatever, you know, the, these songs that they have. <laughs> You're not going to see that in a Bill Lustig movie, but. So much of the mythos around true romance is Quentin Tarantino, which, fair enough, not, not critical of that, but it sometimes I think. Tony Scott's place in this gets lost. And this is a really, to me, it's a very pivotal movie in terms of moving Scott towards the kind of ladder, the man on fire, the latter part of his career from the Top Gun Beverly Hill Cops. So I feel like this is a pivotal moment, not just for Tarantino as a screenwriter and his place in pop culture, but also for Tony Scott as kind of developing his kind of cinematic aesthetic style. And I wish he'd have stayed a little bit more with this. I really was a big fan of Tony Scott. When he first passed away, I had gotten a deal to write a book about him, and I ended up backing out. But those last films, the quick editing just goes to this place where, though know, some of those are difficult to watch. 
you know, his taking of Pelham one, two, three remake, there are things that are flashing by the screen and chopped up. You know, you could almost have just a static, what would be a static shot of somebody edited into seven pieces. I mean, it's almost ridiculous, but Tony Scott, I think in some ways was at the height of his powers here. Yeah. I felt that way about unstoppable. I watched that recently and found exactly that just the rapid pace of the one scene, but the multiple camera takes just was disorienting. Or deja vu, or the what's the one about the female bounty hunter? I mean, they were. Oh, they, Domino. Domino. It was a streak yeah. of those. I don't think Domino would have been possible had not Natural Born Killers come along. Just the style that Oliver Stone puts into what he's doing with. I don't uh, like either one of them, so I'll tell you now. I. Because I think that they both try so hard to be this artsy thing. They're neat as art in a way. They're not fun to watch. I don't know, maybe Domino in some ways, but maybe Natural Born Killers in some ways, but my God, you know, there's so many different styles at play in Natural Born Killers that it's a it's like a student film gone berserk. So it's a little like a stew that someone put too many ingredients in. You say, you should have stopped when it was beef stew. We didn't need the chicken and the lobster and everything else. Like you just put a little too much into it. Well, even with Natural Born Killers, that feels like a natural extension of what he was doing in JFK. And with JFK, I feel like that was a very purposeful decision because you're telling a story from so many different perspectives. So why not use so many different formats and use these things and use that? And I'm not sure who did that, that overhead godlike lighting first, you know, but Obviously, we've seen Spike Lee use it. We've seen Martin Scorsese use it. And then we even have Tony Scott using it in this one when it's the scene between Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. So those things in Natural Born Killers feel like an extension of JFK. But yeah, it's it's very, I mean, it's super trippy. I always found this interesting. I have no idea if it's true. Uh, I was talking to C.M. Talkington, who did Love in a 45, which is another one of these movies in that vein, right? And he told me... His story is Oliver Stone was considering his script. So he sits on it for a while, but he doesn't know that this is when David Belos and who is the other one, when they're doing their rewrite of Natural Born Killers. So there was some stuff that is directly out of Love in a 45. I think it was the marriage scene where they cut their fingers and they bleed into the, like into the water or whatever. So his contention always was that they were just stealing stuff out of his script and then they gave it back to him and told him they weren't interested. And so he didn't know till the movie came out that there were similarities. And if you don't have money, you don't sue Oliver Stone. I mean, if you're me, you're you. Who's got the bread to sue Oliver Stone? And again, I don't know if that's true, but that was the story. This movie definitely benefits, I think, a lot from Tony Scott and having him behind the helm. There are a lot of moments where... It was weird. There were a lot of moments while I was watching this where I was thinking, okay, this is very Tony Scott, but at the same time, I could see where people like Michael Bay were just, you know, trying to eat Tony Scott's lunch, especially when it comes to the scenes that are usually outdoors and you have that pastel sky. And it feels like I know there's different things that you can do to your the lens on your camera and put different filters on there. And it feels very much like top half of the screen is a filter. Bottom half is just regular and getting those like candy colored skies. He does that quite a few times throughout this and that, and just kind of the slick look of it. I mean, this is, I mean, to me, 
Tony Scott is at the height of his powers at this point. I mean, I'm not a big Days of Thunder fan, but I fucking love The Last Boy Scout. I love The Last Boy Scout. I love it. It's one of the best for me. And then Crimson Tide right after this. Holy cow. I mean, what a run. They hired Tarantino to do some rewrites for Crimson Tide. You know, and Bill Unger told me that, same producer, that up until the very last minute, when they're absolutely about to shoot, Tarantino still hadn't done his rewrites. And so he said he kept calling him. He wasn't calling back. Tarantino's somewhere overseas. And he calls and he says, his quote was, the whole world is going to fall on my head. This was Bill Unger because he said, everything, I got you this job. Everything's going to fall on me. Denzel and all these people that are pay for play. There were several actors that were considering backing out because they wanted the Tarantino rewrite. And so Tarantino says, I, you know, he ends up calling in the middle of the night. Bill Unger's asleep and he calls and he says, I've got it. Or he says he leaves it on his, his answering machine, this long message. He's like, I've got it. I've figured it out. I've got it in my head. And he delivers this really long message. It's Tarantino. Of course, there's going to be some monologues, but he delivers this long monologue onto his answering machine, and he says, I got it. And so I guess they they lock him in a hotel room for like three days, and he does the whole rewrite, which I think is kind of interesting. That, But he, he goes to the last minute and terrifies the shit out of everyone. The whole thing about Portuguese stallions, the Lipizzaner stallions. The Lipizzaner stallions, yeah. Jesus Christ, that is that's the most Tarantino dialogue in there. And then isn't there also a um mentions of the Silver Surfer in that movie as well? There is, there is, yeah. Yeah, that one definitely felt like it. Speaking of horses. Did you ever see those Lipizzaner stallions? What? From Portugal. The Lipizzaner stallions. Most highly trained horses in the world. They're all white. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're aware they're all white, or yes, sir, you've seen them? Yes, sir, I've seen them. Yes, sir, I'm aware that they're all white. They're not from Portugal, they're from Spain. And at birth, they're not white, they're black. I didn't know that. But they are from Portugal. I was surprised there wasn't more product stuff in there at the time or more pop culture. but Mm -hmm. Because that was at the point where, you know, he was writing a lot of pop culture stuff. Well, and that was new for movies. I mean, this was all fresh and new stuff. So hearing him, hearing Clarence talk about, once again, we go into the West, blah, blah, blah. The whole thing from- There's uh, a scene from the, from Bullet, just right. all of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. There were the, what I'm trying to think of is the, uh, the, the opening to The Lone Ranger, you know, just all of these things, yeah. And then you get to hear these echoes of things that are in other Tarantino properties, like- uh, when Drexel says everything from a diddle-eyed Joe to a damned if I know, and I'm just like, that's such a Tarantinoism. And There's a version of that in one of the other scripts, too. I think it was an early version of Natural Born Killers, but that's in that also, if I got the right script. One of the early ones. Well, it's fun, too, because there are so many actors and actresses, well, mostly actors, because there's very few women in this movie. I can think of maybe four, maybe, off the top of my head. 
mostly men and mostly men that are going to show up. They've either been in Tarantino properties or they will be in a Tarantino property very soon. So like your Tom Sizemore's, your Chris Penn's, you know, there's so many crossovers here. Brad Pitt shows up. Sam Jackson, of course, is in here. I mean, there's just a ton of these folks that you're going to see in one movie and then show up again. Or, you know, of course, when I'm watching this the first time, I'm super thrilled because here's Alabama. And we got that mention of Alabama being a good little thief in Reservoir Dogs. So I don't think that that was really intended to be the same character. Um, You know, that's been a talk. But in the beginning, he used a lot of the same names. He just did. Because even when you look at My Best Friend's Birthday, you know, the two characters are the two names. You've got Clarence and you've got, what's his name? The guy from Natural Born Killers. Oh, Mickey. Mickey Knox. So you have yeah. Clarence and Mickey already in his first thing are the names of the, and he used like, there was a name Toothpick Vic that's in multiple scripts. And so I think that early on, he was just playing around using these names. And I think early on, he wasn't even sure that all of these things were going to get made. He's like, that's a cool name. I'll just basically cannibalize my own work, put this over here. and But it's nice. It adds to this lore. Like, I'm not even really sure about the whole Vic Vega. And I mean, it's neat. Again, the two Vega brothers, were they really intended originally to be brothers? I don't think so, because Michael Madsen was originally supposed to be. He wrote it for Madsen. So Madsen would have played both characters. So would he have been his brother? I don't know. Could have been twins. It's evidence of the fan base around Tarantino, this desire to take that and create a Tarantino universe, right? So unlike Marvel, which has been based on material that is a kind of coherent narrative. There's a desire for fans of Tarantino to see this as one coherent universe. And that's just proof of how much he's become a center of pop culture gravity. Probably the average person may forget that Tony Scott directed this. They may forget, you know, other folks who are involved in this, but it is a Tarantino film. And that just shows how central he's become as kind of part of new Hollywood or the modern Hollywood. Yeah, that whole idea of this being this shared universe, I'm surprised that there is a mention of Chesterfield cigarettes. Had this come out a few years later, he would have been smoking red apples. Oh, definitely. Well, and I think that he's played into it now because why wouldn't you? You know, so he's played into it in the same same way that I think J.K. Rowling has done this, where you go back and you rewrite things now. You rewrite history. So I'm trying to remember the name of the Saul Rubinek's lawyer character. But Saul Rubinek's character in this uh, now he says that was the grandson of Brad Pitt's character in, or one of the characters in Inglorious Bastards. Sorry, I don't get it right because I didn't really pay attention to it because I didn't really believe it. But he said it himself, and and I get that. Why not play into that if that's what people want? Yeah, there's a Donowitz in both movies, so why aren't they related? Lee Donowitz, yeah. I always figured Lee Donowitz was a stand-in for Joel Silver. Yeah, it's he so strikes me as that. They said a lot of that was Tony Scott's idea to, to really play him after Joel Silver. So he's sitting there and he's watching the the dailies. And I think that was added because I think Bill Unger said he was with Tony Scott or Tony Scott told him he had had a meeting with Joel Silver at one time. And Joel Silver was just sitting there watching these dailies the whole time that he was trying to have a conversation with him. It feels like Lee Donowitz is like the nicer version of Joel Silver. Not to say that Joel Silver is a jerk or anything, but it just feels like I would like to sit down with Lee Donowitz and just have a nice conversation. He seems like such a nice person. And I don't think we're supposed to get that. 
We park our cars in the same garage, Clarence. I know I'm jumping around here, but it's just there's a lot of stuff to to talk about with this one. I mean, a few months ago we talked Andy about my best friend's birthday, and I highly recommend that people check out that episode. But and my book, <laughs> and, and of course your book. This is not the Rosetta Stone of Tarantino like we had talked about with my best friend's birthday, but there are a lot of things in here where you're just like, oh, this is going to lead to that, and this is going to lead to that, or just like weird coincidences, like Lee Donowitz watching those things. Are there any fate in true romance? I don't remember any. I think so. I don't think so. But again, Scott is, you know, directed it. I mean, a lot of those are directorial decisions to throw some of those feet in. Directorial decision that I found the most interesting is that they had Hans Zimmer recreate the theme from Badlands. Gassenhauer by Karl Orff. You're so cool by Hans Zimmer. Tony Scott intended that. You know, he told me, yes, it's supposed to mirror Badlands. The same way that in his mind, Enemy of the State was a sequel to the conversation. I mean, they're not quite the same, but yeah. There's even a moment in Enemy of the State where I think they show Gene Hackman's photo as Harry Call, and you're just like, oh, okay. But yeah, this isn't that Rosetta Stone, but there are some very interesting coincidences. Like I was saying, the uh, the dailies that Lee Donowitz is watching are actually supposed supposedly from Platoon, the outtakes and, and dailies from Platoon, which is funny since Oliver Stone is in this picture just like a year later. My biggest thing with this movie is that this is, yeah, this is Detroit in name, and it's Detroit in some of these establishing shots, but there needed to be a little bit more research done on Detroit because we don't have 116th or 160th streets. We don't have streets like that. We don't, we have a few streets that have numbers, but not this. And then we have no movie theaters in Detroit other than Cinema Detroit, which wasn't around back then, but I think the the renaissance theater was open at the top of the renaissance center but otherwise there was a period of time for at least 10 years if not 20 that there were no movie theaters in downtown detroit they had gone from regular theaters to grindhouses to just being shuttered and that was it and in 1993 or even in 1985 when this was probably written there's no movie theaters in Detroit, much less something that's showing Sonny Chiba triple feature, which, God help me, how amazing would that be? He'd always said this was him attempting to write an Elmore Leonard story. To me, it's not really, I mean, I love Elmore Leonard, and I found him 
late also because of Jackie Brown, but which is embarrassing to admit, but I never really thought that it felt like an Elmore Leonard novel, except that it's in, in fake Detroit, you know, and you do have criminals and you do have witty dialogue, but they, they both seem like their own good thing, if that makes sense. This film, I think this and RoboCop are one of those early points where that post-apocalyptic Detroit, which is now really continued, especially in some of the horror movies like It Follows and others where you have, or Barbarian, where you have this desolate, destroyed Detroit. And so they're in that early 90s when the auto industry is just starting to fall apart and the industrial side is just starting to fall apart. The Rust Belt is sort of hitting its, its you know, nadir of really falling apart. You're getting true romance and a little bit before that RoboCop focusing on this idea of Detroit as becoming the archetypal American, like desolate city. And of course, in true romance, the desire is to get out and go West, which of course is where we always want to go, right? Go, go West young man. And it's interesting how that fits out in the film. This movie is such distinct parts, you know, like this whole first part with the date that they're on. And then the idea of her being beholden to this pimp And I don't think she really is. Like, I think she would be absolutely fine just going wherever. And like, she was out of Drexel's life. And I think he was okay with that. But instead, it's Clarence having this fucked up sense of justice and morality and can't stand the idea of Drexel breathing the same air that he's breathing, that he goes into the bathroom. Another Tarantino thing. Tarantino loves scenes in bathrooms where he talks to Elvis and with Elvis in here, I think Elvis is just a part of Clarence's brain. Of course. I mean, I don't think any of us on this call are thinking that there was a real Elvis in there, but it just feels like Elvis is there to just reinforce what's on Clarence's mind and almost feed him bad ideas. He's almost a little bit of son of Sam to Clarence. I think he's like, you know, the play it again, Sam character, you know, where Bogey comes and talks to Woody Allen, but you're right. All of his ideas are bad. He's like a asshole Bogey, you know, <laughs> he's asshole Elvis. It's no wonder that the Elvis estate didn't want his name and like misused in this because they didn't. That's why none of his songs are in this. I mean, if they look and they're like, Elvis just wants to shoot all these people and do a bunch of bullshit. I blame Val Kilmer for that. I think it's all his fault, but you know, I think it's interesting to me. And we've talked about this earlier, extent to which Tarantino's movies are so masculine. They're so full of male actors and they're so full of broken men. And that, to me, one of the interesting themes across Tarantino's films is that effort by broken men to sort of find redemption. And of course, as is often the case in American film, the redemption is through violence. And so for Clarence, it is, how can I find love when I am a broken person? I have to find that love by redeeming it through blood. To me, if there's any archetypal theme that runs through Tarantino's films, it is that masculinity saves itself through blood. I mean, it's someone's always got to die. Yeah, there's no coincidence here that they're watching A Better Tomorrow 2 on TV. Just that whole idea of the heroic bloodshed and that use of violence as a redemptive tool. I mean, I'm curious, Kendall, what do you think of Clarence as our main character? What are your thoughts on what Christian Slater is bringing to the party? I love Christian Slater's performance. I think it's, it's you know, it's it's sort of a little bit James Dean from Rebel Without a Cause, a little bit classic broken man. I think it's it's Rebel Without a Cause through Apocalypse Now to a kind of broken uh, taxi driver De Niro kind of character. And I think uh, it's a brilliant performance. I do 
at some level start to ask the question about why Tarantino keeps coming back to this trope of the broken man who redeems themselves through violence. Even by the time we get to once upon a time in Hollywood, it comes down to redeem your masculinity with a flamethrower. It's kind of like at some point, there's got to be another way to be a man than, you know, burning someone alive or shooting someone in the crotch. But, you know, maybe that's just me. So there was that rumor that, you know, he had studied Tarantino to be this role, right? Because everybody assumed this is a stand-in for Tarantino. And in a lot of ways, I think that's true. But he did not really base this on, as far as mannerisms on Tarantino. That part is a lie. But there are so many things, like, I know you're asking more about his performance. I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't find the performance to be spectacular, even though it's good. It, it's good. It's just kind of more grounded. In, I didn't see it as deemed... James Deansian, <laughs> Deansian, but it's clearly Tarantino at that time. It's clearly his fantasy because like even, you know, the comic book store is a stand-in for video archives. The boss's name is Lance, which is after Lance Lawson, who is the co-owner with Dennis Humbert, who ran video archives. And so many of these things are just, and it is kind of a male fantasy that, you know, somebody's going to buy me this prostitute that, Attractive woman's going to come up to me while I'm at while I'm watching three Sunny Chiba movies, and she also likes Sunny Chiba, and she's going to want to get some pie and talk about movies before she takes me back and we have sex, and and it's just it, it is wild, it's crazy, and I really do think that the you know when he goes and he shoots Drexel, I mean I really do think even though I, I like the Drexel character, I think he's fascinating, even if he's not PC, he's an entertaining character and is a great performance too. But I really do think that is a taxi driver. This is just straight out of Taxi Driver. It's even better than Taxi Driver in that we barely know sport. I really, yeah, I was very impressed. And I had remembered the Gary Oldman performance as being much more cringy than it is. And I have to say, I, I actually got into this. I was really enjoying what he was doing. I really liked that. In my mind, I thought he had like a real black scent and... When I went back to revisit this, I was just like, oh, no, he he doesn't. He uses some of the language. And, of course, there's dropping N-bombs like crazy. It does seem realistic to that character. I mean, I don't know that guy, obviously. One real quick thing to tie in is in Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, he talks about Taxi Driver. Harvey Keitel, and this will tie in, Harvey Keitel goes out and he's looking for a white pimp to emulate. And guess what? In all of New York City, he finds zero white pimps. So, you know, so him and Richard Gere in Report to the Commissioner are the first two real white pimps that we see in these movies. Tony Scott told me this. Oldman was doing another movie when he read the script, and there was a guy that he was smoking pot with. I think he was smoking pot. I don't remember. But he was like, this is the guy. Like, the way this guy acts, he's the guy. And so he sort of emulated him to become Drexel which is interesting. I'd love to meet that guy and just see, you know, the similarities. Oldman is on the screen for like a minute. Like it, it's a very brief amount of time at the beginning. And yet when I was thinking of the movie, my memory of true romance before I watched it again, he was a considerable amount of screen time because he's such a presence. And for me, this performance is right up there with his performance in the professional where he's the, the drug-addled police officer kind of gone crazy. Those two are just Oldman at that dangerous best. Like you sort of really feel he's dangerous even on the screen. Like there's something about him that is just off kilter. And so I think brilliant, brilliant performances. One, I think the makeup is fantastic. What they're doing with him with the eye and the scar around there. 
in the hands of somebody else, it could have been a real pantomime type performance. And I think Gary Oldman just elevates it completely. The thing I like about this movie, and I definitely want to give it praise when I feel that it's due, is the whole idea of how the movie, it won't necessarily stop dead in its tracks, but it will pause and give us time to be with these characters. You know, like we get a lot, well, we don't get a ton of Drexel, but at least it feels like we get a pretty good amount. Like you were saying, Kendall, I think my interpretation of this movie was, oh, he's in this a ton, but he's in basically two scenes, you know, and he, he steals those scenes. He's fantastic in those to the point where I, I had even forgotten that Samuel L. Jackson was in the first scene with him. And I, when he showed up, I was like, Oh, Sam Jackson's in this, you know, he apparently right after this, he goes right into Pulp Fiction preparation mode. Cause uh, Tarantino was saying that he took the entire cast of Pulp Fiction to see this. And so that would have been a little interesting, Sam Jackson coming in and, and seeing himself on screen. But but we definitely pause like when Dennis Hopper shows up, we get a lot of him. Of course, when Christopher Walken shows up, I mean, the whole movie basically just stops dead in its tracks. That is the scene, is that Dennis Hopper, Christopher Walken scene. Like, I think it's so well acted and it's so well thought out in its intent. And those performances are just wow i think i don't know what you guys think but hopper is amazing in that scene and then walken's face like can you believe this shit like can you believe and then at the end when he's like i haven't killed anybody in 24 years or whatever it was it kind of like this motherfucker made me kill him you know and i love it i just love it but the whole scene you know where he's saying these things because he's he knows if he lives he's going to give up clarence so he basically forces his hand to kill him and by going against his heritage. I mean, again, there's some race stuff there, and there is, but the writing of that scene and the intent, I think, is just brilliantly done. This is not a scene you would be able to push through most studios today. I don't think Disney's greenlighting this anytime soon. So there's definitely some uncomfortable uh, early 90s American racism. God bless us. We're always good at that. But the performances of Walken and Hopper, it is a masterclass in watching. It's like watching, you know, two amazing dancers, figure skaters on the ice and watching them work with each other. And it is such a beautiful dance. It's it's hard to take your eyes off of it. It's just amazing the way that drops into the movie and it becomes its own universe. And then we're back to the Clarence story. Oh, and there's a double up of a name again, too, because he's Vincent Kakati. So, I mean, there's so many of those names, too. You mentioned the MPAA thing and how it wouldn't slide today. And, you know, and so that brings up the thing of the Sam Jackson scene. They they think that he says pussy too many times. It was pussy, right? And they keep cutting it and cutting it. Because one of the things that Bill Unger told me was they kept going back and forth, back and forth with new cuts. And he said, and we're all kind of scratching. What do you say? We're all kind of laughing and crying at the same time. Like, I can't remember who the guy at the head of the MPAA was at the time, but he's like, how we're all laughing about how many times can you say pussy and not offend this man? It's kind of absurd, but so you can do all of that. But, you know, there's things that you can do, but pussy's too much. It's over the line, not the 10 N words, but pussy. I found it hilarious. I was watching this with the captions on and he's talking about how he eats pussy. He eats the butt. He eats the whole thing. But the captions say, I eat the bud, B-U-D. And I'm like, what? So if you were deaf, you'd be like, well, he just eats everything. 
Yeah, that that's a, a fantastic moment. I really like the whole pussy eating scene. It is really good. And I always thought that there would have been a little bit more. And I know that there are deleted scenes on the DVD and you can watch all of those, which is fantastic. But the murder comes so suddenly that I always thought there must have been something in between there. It does feel like not enough. Like that is one complaint I will say I have about this movie is that that scene just feels like not enough. We just pop in. Here's some guys we don't know. Kaboom. Cause he just takes that shotgun. He's like, well, there's this. And then there's you kaboom. And I'm like, okay, give it another couple of years. And that would be a, he would be telling a joke. And the shotgun blast would be the end of the joke. That's, you know, that's your natural born killers thing is Mickey there telling the whole thing about, you know, what was it? Little Steven or whatever it was. Yeah. What were you doing? Testament to the performances that we see that very brief scene. And yet to us, it's a whole world. But to us, it's an entire relationship. We know the Samuel Jackson character. We know the relationship between all these characters. Like just in those few seconds on screen, we see that full three-dimensional world open. And it tells us so much about Drexel. That's the thing with all of this. I was talking about how the movie will like give us these little, you know, off ramps kind of to, to give us that incredible scene with Walken and Hopper. Or even when it comes to like fucking Dick Ritchie or Floyd or any of these guys. All of Elliot these little Blitzer. characters are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're great. You know, all these people. And you can keep the Vega Brothers movie. That's okay. But, and unfortunately, you can't do this anymore. But my gosh, I would have loved to have had Dimes and Nicholson have their own show. You know, the chemistry between Chris Penn and Tom Sizemore. I thought that was fantastic. And when they come into the movie, wow. Could have been a whole season of True Detective. But I do want to point out one thing I think should be observed is that this is absolutely true. Every male character, right? All the male characters, there's a whole universe. The female characters, other than Alabama, are entirely cardboard cutouts who come in to play a particular part, right? Either to be the girl in the bar or to be, you know, whatever other role. And then they are kind of ushered off. So it's interesting. It's not going to pass the Beckdale test. It's not going to happen. Not even close. <laughs> Because that's where I was coming. I was kind of falling down early. I was just like, how many women are in this? I mean, of course, there's the, the casting director in Alabama. There's Candy, the, I guess she's a prostitute also, the one that uh, he's, uh, snorting coke with. And, and I guess it's Lee's car. I never really realized that until today. That's about it. You know, otherwise you're just talking like a whole lot of men and even like some of the smaller roles, like, Kevin Corrigan, I freaking love Kevin Corrigan, but he's barely in this movie. You know, he's got that kind of crazy hair in here. Again, his name's Marvin. You know, I shot Marvin in the face. There's another one, yeah. You know what I love and talk about the tiny thing? James Gandolfini's another person that shows up. But Gandolfini's line about killing people. And, you know, and he says, and the first one's the bitch of the bunch. But after that, and he's like, and now I just kill him just to watch their expressions change that i'm sorry i know that's hyper macho masculine whatever i love that line i think that line is fantastic i mean for me probably is partly going back and watching it post sopranos but i i kind of feel like when i first watched there is something so it absolutely captures that tony soprano persona which is this friendly affable guy that you're charmed by and you kind of want to hang out with and you want to hear them talk and yet at another level in their eyes, you see something really dangerous. He could snap at any moment. Yeah, it could totally. And to see him do that at such an early phase, really in his career, 
this is just a yeah another another performance that really stands out beyond the film beyond the screen time and you walk away saying wow that was something like that guy was somebody well he gives one of the best little moments in this movie for me when he is having alabama turn around and have her turn around again the other way and then he pops her right in the face the expression on his face afterwards, he kind of like looks up at the sky and it's almost like the face that Bill Cosby makes after he's had jello. He's so thrilled by that. He's just like, mm, it's so sweet. It is, you know, it's just like, where is this coming from? And then there's a hard cut right after that to go back to Clarence. And that's really nice too. I mean, so much of this stuff is right on the, the page. This whole thing of her getting the shit kicked out of her while you've got Clarence over eating Jim. a hamburger and talking about Elvis or whatever. Talking about fucking Elvis and just like, my God, dude, your woman is just getting the shit kicked out of her by this guy. Come on. One thing I was going to talk about was even though, and she's a very one-dimensional character, I do like, though, that she's a tough one-dimensional character. Because that whole thing where she, you know, and I'm not saying that that redeems the the presence of the, the way that that character's written, but I do really like that she fights back and... Although maybe something better than a corkscrew, right? Like may, maybe the maybe the wide opener is not your best option, but yeah, fine. I've always had a real soft spot for Patricia Arquette. I mean, she's been in some real awful stuff, but when she's in good things, I mean, she's even good in bad things, and she is great in this. You just believe her. You want to be her friend, you know, you're just like, wow, Clarence is the luckiest guy in the world. Here comes this girl with these amazing curls looking like a Charlie's angel. And yeah, she's just so sweet. And I love that they give her the voiceover at the beginning and the end too. So it kind of becomes her movie. I don't know that I believe her story. No, I don't believe her story at all. No. I just became a prostitute basically yesterday and you know, I'm sweet and innocent and no, I think she's, conning him but i mean why not he's her ticket out i guess not an obvious ticket she has no idea he's gonna go do the crap that he does but well there is a moment in one of those early drafts where drexel's like oh yeah no she sucked my dick and she's doing this she's doing that and just like talking about all the sex that he's had with her and how how much power he's got over her and i'm like yeah that's not a four-day relationship all three Arquette siblings appear in Tarantino work, right? I don't know. Maybe there's more that I don't know of. There could, well, I guess, is there another Arquette? I can't remember. But, you know, Alexis Arquette, who's gone, is is the guy that everybody says looks like Seinfeld and in Pulp Fiction comes out shooting. Patricia's in True Romance. And then Rosanna Arquette is in Pulp Fiction. I mean, it's a lot of Arquettes. A lot of Arquettes. <laughs> What about David Arquette? Is he in a Tarantino film? I can't. Oh, there he is, David Arquette. I thought there's another one. There's a male. That's him. Quentin, you've got to put David in your film to to complete the family trifecta. There. He was too busy wrestling, so they. This movie really did help Patricia put her on the map. I mean, she had already been in stuff, but they were very smaller indie things most of the time. I remember her mostly from Prayer of the Roller Boys, uh, which is one of my favorite. I don't ever use the term guilty pleasure, but like that movie is pretty darn bad and I know it, but I still enjoy it. Of course, she had been in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and a few other things, but this really helped her out, I felt, put her in some other things, such as the amazing movie Holy Matrimony, where she goes amongst the Amish and gets married to a little boy. So yeah, good times. 
I can't remember the name of the guy's name that wrote the, the book about Tony Scott. Seems like maybe Scott Bradley, something like that. I can't remember. But he was supposed to write an essay for, I got an essay book on Tarantino coming out. And um, he posited that it would have been a, a lesser movie if Tarantino had directed it. My only point was that the soundtrack would have been a whole hell of a lot better. But I, I'm curious to see what you guys think as far as would it have been much different? What would it be like? I mean, would it be bad? I think both versions would have been good. I really like it as it stands. So I kind of hate to imagine it changing too much, but we know the ending would be different because Tarantino never wanted, you know, never wanted Clarence to live in the script. Clarence lives and, or I mean, Clarence dies and in the movie and Roger Avery comes in and rewrites, writes that scene for the ending. But other than that, how, we don't know. What do you guys think? There would have been so many stylistic differences. Like I said, you know, Tony Scott was very much about the style. Sometimes the slit. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. to his, his fault. I mean, things like Drexel falling into the fish tank in slow motion or all the feathers and Coke and all those things flying around through the air. But I think the feathers thing, because you know, that the whole John Woo kind of thing, I think, you know, the ballet, you know, violence or whatever. I think Tarantino was totally into that. I don't remember if it's in the script. He'd have totally done that. But, you know, if he'd have thought about it, I don't know. But but you're right about the stylistic things for sure. It always seems to be Tony Scott was, I think his background was as a painter. And so it did always feel like he was creating each sort of shot was kind of a visual palette for us to sort of absorb. And I'm not sure that Tarantino is that kind of director. I mean, it seems much more kind of recycling of lots of other motifs. So I expect it would be a little more frenetic and chaotic in Tarantino's. I also wonder about the temporality. I think, you know, shooting in, telling the story in a narrative order, as opposed to the earlier script where it starts at the middle and moves its way around a little more like Pulp Fiction. It'd be interesting to see. And I don't think I'd want to see that with this. No, I wouldn't either. But I mean, we're saying it after the fact, but I think we would have gotten some shots that are a little bit farther away. It feels like Tony Scott is very into people's faces and just right up on them a lot of times. <laughs> and Tarantino's into people's feet. So there you go. <laughs> We'd have seen some Patricia Arquette feet. I feel confident you know, in that. I'm but. not even the one bringing up the feet thing. You know, I just want to go oh, on I think the it's record. Funny. I don't think he cares. And No, I'm the Tarantino stand, but, you know, I have a foot fetish, so I don't give a shit. I'll throw it right out there. But... You know, I think we'd have seen more feet because I will say it because I'm sorry, but Bridget Fonda has, she has good feet. What do you yeah. want? All right. <laughs> I have no comment on this, Mike. I just want to be clear. I, wanna... I don't even know where they would work all that in. I mean, yeah, probably some Alabama scenes, maybe in the bathtub, the feet oh, yeah. hanging off the side or something. I, I'm In the car. Yeah, maybe. Oh yeah. Up definitely in the, in the car. Put those, you know, especially if they're nice and filthy. Or hanging out the window, like in. Yeah, or or filthy and pressed up against the w window. I don't understand no. the filthy feet, though. I don't. I don't understand. Man, oh man, I don't want to see dirty yeah. anything. But Marco Robbie, get your filthy feet off the freaking seats in the theater. <laughs> if it's Marco Robbie, I might make an exception. I'll suck those dirty toes, but otherwise, not dirty. <laughs> Going to reiterate, no comment. Uh, I just want to be clear. I have no comment on this conversation. Well, I have one other thing. I was gonna. I was gonna throw out, which is is. Going back and watching this again reminded me of the connections I had made at the time, which were to some earlier films that felt very much in conversation, but were clearly you know different filmmakers. One was Wild at Heart, the David Lynch film that felt, and then the other was a little bit earlier, the film Straight to Hell, which was a very indie Joe Strummer, a very early Courtney Love, um, and I 
in retrospect, looking back, I realize how much I associated true romance, particularly with Wild at Heart, even almost more than I did later Tarantino films. Like it felt like those, that particular moment, late 80s, early 90s, was just a kind of moment for that kind of film. And so I'm, you know, I guess I'm putting out there if people, other people saw that relationship between the David Lynch film and the Tony Scott film. Yeah, yeah. Even my wife saw that when we were watching this the other day. She was just like, what was that movie with Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern? I was like, yeah, yeah, I can see that. And especially, you know, the idea of setting things up for a big robbery and that one, you know, sailors kind of coerced into going along with Willem Dafoe, but even just like the caliber of actors again, and just all of these people who are somebody, you know, just, oh, here's Harry Dean Stanton for a little bit. Here's Willem Dafoe for a little bit. Here's Grace Zabrinsky for a little bit. I mean, it's just nice to have all of these faces, but we don't get big speeches, obviously, in, in any sort of David Lynch works. I mean, you might get a little bit from like the cowboy in Mulholland Drive, but you're not getting a whole lot. Like he's not filling up pages full of dialogue. And that's definitely why you've got the caliber of actors in here. Cause people want to say these speeches. They are actors love this stuff. They love having these speeches that they can just sink their teeth into and give you some great performances out of them. Even though I love Tarantino's movies, I don't know that I would want this change because the actors are so on point. You'd have ended up with a different cast. You know, I doubt you'd have ended up with a Bronson Pinchot. But for that role, he's great. Or, you know, who would we have gotten to play Drexel? I mean, it's an inspired choice, but we don't know that that's the way that that would have gone. Or who the hell would play Clarence? I mean, it's, you're, it's just a bizarre other thing to even think about. I think the casting is so on point that it's hard to even imagine it as anything else. But... Sorry for throwing that back in there, but I was still thinking about this, you know, in the back of my head. I mean, it's an interesting question, actually. Is there anybody in the cast you didn't care for? Is there any casting that you sort of like in watching it again, coming back to it, you thought, uh, that seemed like a I mean, Drexel's friend is kind of goofy, but he doesn't really have much to say. Uh there are a couple little moments in here where I'm just like, I'm not exactly sure what you're going for, because I can't remember if it's if it's Victor Argo or somebody else, the guy who doesn't speak English and he comes in and he's asking like, Hey, what's Christopher Walken talking about? And it's like, you know, I think it's like, Oh, that, that we come from black people or something like that. And I'm just like, that doesn't really work. And there's a few times where he comes in and he's just like, I'm going to speak Italian and speaks Italian. And then that's it. And I'm like, okay. Or like, there's the, the guy who gets shot at the end, the African-American gentleman who gets shot during the big Michael Beach, like he's a great actor and he just shows up with no lines, really. Well, like, and then that Chris, Chris Penn is like, oh, that's for so-and-so. And I was like, no, that does he say that's for Cody? I think he says that's for Cody. So like revenge, getting vengeance, Tom Sizemore. But the way that it plays out, I was like, did you just get vengeance for the black guy that we don't know or for your partner of all these years? It was just odd. But I love those bodyguards. The The one guy who's just like. I don't like cops and just goes for it. They're kind of dumb and they, they just kind of come in and they're like these generic movie goons that come in with machine guns and with the nineties ponytail, you got to have the ponytail, right? That's the, the classic. They seem like characters from a Tony Scott movie. I mean, cause I could see them in last boy scout. I could see them. And, and both of those movies are movies where you've got a really strong screenwriter, but Tony Scott still manages to do his own thing. Because Shane Black is definitely one of my favorite screenwriters, right up there with, with Tarantino. 
both of them have that they have great dialogue whatever people may like or not like both of them have an ear for this heightened realism dialogue well, just such tough stuff you know and i i did uh love the story of tarantino going to the set of the last boy scout to meet up with tony scott and you know oh i'm just watching bruce willis doing his thing and i'm just like well that's pretty cool because in a couple of years he's going to be working with you and probably one of his best roles is butch you know so that's kind of cool but love last boy scout and i love that whole tough guy thing you know you touch me again i'm gonna kill you you know like all that kind of stuff the one the other one one i love in that is um my wife's your wife when he says that about your wife and the guy goes how do you know it was my wife and she said he's a big pimp looking motherfucker with a hat on like it's just such random but funny lines and it's in that same scene i think right in there where he kills the guy i haven't seen it for a while but i love last boy's gun yeah, and the stuff that gets cut out of True Romance, I don't really miss, because I was doing a read-along with this, and like I said, there are a couple lines here and there, but I think they were very judicious, and there's, you know, to the point where they even shot a bunch of stuff, and re-watching those today, I was just like, yeah, all this stuff is okay being on the cutting room floor. I, I mean, I think Scott was reverential to the script. I really do. To the oh, words. yeah. Yeah, I think other than that ending, they were pretty much in lockstep almost all the way. And Tarantino was really mad, I guess, because Bill Unger was telling him, you know, he dies. Like, I know he dies. And I mean, for him, it was, you know, a writer that wrote these, these characters were real to him. And it's like, he dies. And Tony Scott wanted to have a happy ending. I'm kind of a writer that writes bleak endings and they piss people off, but I kind of go more that way. So I kind of like that because then naming the baby Elvis and all, that seems like a little too on the, on the nose to me. And I like Roger Avery, but that... I don't know. Well, it was interesting that they shot most of the other ending. You know, they do have that on the DVD, and they cut away, though, a couple times to storyboards that were never shot. So I think it's, I want to say it's Alabama putting a gun in her mouth and contemplating suicide while you hear her voiceover at one point. And then, not quite as no, happy. but then she takes the gun out <laughs> and it's just like, okay, you know. I will be okay moving on without Clarence. And then it ends with her whole mantra of you're so cool. You're so cool. You're so cool. Um, no baby in that one, but I, I don't think she even mentions the baby in that. So I'll be controversial and say, I actually prefer the Tony Scott Avery ending. I feel like particularly the film has a slightly more comic than tragic tone throughout. Like it's always got a little bit of tongue in cheek, We've got Elvis guiding him in the bathrooms, so like, you know, which we all should have Elvis guiding us in the bathroom, but it feels like there's a little bit of a comic lightness. And this is all in some ways also kind of his fantasy. This is kind of Clarence's dream world. And so having him die at the end would have been. And it does get so dark in that last, like there is a shift in tone that is really, now that you're saying that about it being comical and light, I'm thinking just that whole tone. Cause you've here, you've got, you know, dimes and whatever the other cop are, and they're getting shot up. Like everybody's getting shot up, and it's like, I mean, I I love the movie, but I, wow, that is quite a shift change, and and I get it. I don't really hate the the Avery ending. I just I don't know. I probably would have gone the other way, but I would have been. I probably would have been wrong too. You know. I mean, if there's one real moment that I think could have been better, and I think Tony Scott even admitted this, is what starts the gunfight at the end. You know, you've got 
the cops showing up, you've got the bodyguards, you've got the Italians, you've got Clarence and his crew, you've got, uh, you know, obviously Bronson Prince show, and you've got Saul Rubinek all in there. And what's going to be the moment that starts the violence? And I, I'm trying to remember. Oh, it's when Saul Rubinek throws the hot coffee onto Bronson Pinchot. I think it would have been better. Like, yeah, Saul Rubinek is really pissed off about being betrayed by his own assistant. Rather than coffee in the face, I'm, I would have rather he just grabbed one of the guy's guns and shot him. I think that would have been a lot better. I don't know if that would have been as true to Saul Rubinick's character, but the coffee does isn't enough for me. Like I want a loud noise to start all of that stuff. I want it to be almost like a firing pistol or like even just if one of the Italian guys moved back against bookcase and a vase fell off. And as soon as that vase falls, the shooting starts something a little bit better than that coffee. And maybe that was just like a big heat homage, but I'm not sure. The uh, Tony Scott top gun thing that Tarantino and Roger Avery had come up with prior to this about how all of top gun is basically a story about Tom Cruise's sexuality. You know what one of the greatest fucking scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is? What? Top Gun. Oh, come on. Top Gun is fucking great. What is Top Gun? You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots? Yeah, it's about a bunch of guys waving their dicks around. It is a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. That's it. That is what Top Gun is about, man. You've got Maverick, all right? He's on the edge, man. He's right on the fucking line, all right? And you've got Iceman and all his crew. Right. They're gay. And they are. They represent the gay man, right. all right? And they're saying, go. Go the gay way. Go the gay way. He could go both ways. But not Kelly McGillis, right? Kelly McGill, she's, she's, she's heterosexuality. She's saying, no, 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 no. Go the normal way. Play by the rules. Go the normal way. And they're saying, no. Go the gay way. Be the gay way. Go for the gay way. All right? That is what's going on throughout that whole movie. He goes to her house, right? All right. It looks like they're going to have sex. You know, they're just kind of sitting back. He's taking a shower and everything. They don't have sex. He gets on the motorcycle, drives away. She's like, what the fuck? What the fuck is going on here? Next scene. Next scene you see her. She's in the elevator. She is dressed like a guy. She's got the the cap on. She's got the aviator class. She's wearing the same jacket that the Iceman wears. She is, okay, this is how I got to get this guy. This guy's going towards the gateway. So I got to bring him back. I got to bring him back from the gateway. So I'm going to do that through subterfuge. I'm going to dress like a man. All right? (laughs) That is how she, she she approaches it. Right. Okay. But the real ending of the movie is when they fight the medics at the end. All right. Because he has passed over into the gay way. They are this gay fighting fucking force. All right. And they're beating the Russians. The gays are beating the Russians. All right. And it's over. And they fucking land. And Iceman's been trying to get Maverick the entire time. Finally, he's got him. All right. And what is the last fucking line that they have together? They're all hugging and kissing and happy with each other. And Ice comes up to Maverick and he says, "Man, you can ride my tail." And yes. time. And what does Maverick say? Maverick, you can ride my sword bike! Sword bike! Sword bike! <laughs> Fucking it, <Yeah>. man! <laughs> you know, there was a longer version that Avery had written with him. And this is going to be my brag moment, but I was at Roger Avery's house and he got the laser disc out. So this kind of tells you when this was, but he gets the laser disc out. And we go through the whole movie. He's fast forwarding some scenes, but he's telling me the whole in-depth. And I couldn't tell you today what it was to save my life, but there was so much more in-depth. And the, the 
I, and, but I think about it because I guess Tony Scott was really mad about it when he heard it because it shows up in Sleep With Me. And that's what started or that was one of the things that started the whole beef with Tarantino and Avery in the first place, because Avery said he stole his intellectual properties by not asking permission. And I'm sure there were other things, but by not asking permission, just putting him in this movie and not telling him, even though it was co-written. I don't want to say it was all written by Avery, but. Yeah, and I had forgotten about the connection between Val Kilmer and, and Tony Scott, and then Val Kilmer showing up again in this as Elvis, and then, of course... And both as yeah. rock stars. Oh, no, that was right. Elvis Stone, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm and thinking. then Val Sorry. Kilmer even showing up basically as Elvis in Top Secret, so just kind of reprising his role from that, which was great. Yeah, I when I started off to do this episode, I wasn't going... My plan was not to come in here and just trash this movie like crazy. There are some things that I like, some things that I'm not a big fan of. I've talked about most of those. I think, you know, you're talking about the music earlier. If there's one other thing that I'm not a big fan of is a lot of the music. I mean, the whole uh, Aerosmith song, I'm just not a fan of that song. And when that shows up and it's so freaking loud, I'm just like, okay. I hate all the music in this, actually. The Hans Zimmer stuff is cool, but I mean, the actual you know, like the fake Elvis song sounds so cheesy. Yeah. Oh, and, God, yeah. I mean, I definitely think one thing that I can say we would have gotten that I think would have been better was I've never seen a Tarantino movie that I thought had a lousy soundtrack. Even if he's just lifting, you know, Ennio Morricone stuff and, and using those cues. It was weird that Tony Scott went back and reused that same piece of music from Hunger in this, you know, the... I talked on the Hunger episode that we did a few months ago, the whole lesbian lovemaking scene and just how that music has just become like lesbian lovemaking scene music. And then it, suddenly it starts up when uh, Dennis Hopper is talking about how the Moors conquered Sicily. And I'm just like, what is this doing here? <laughs> There's no lesbians in this scene. Are there? See, that's some subtext that we don't know about is that that would have made more interesting female that. characters, let's be honest. But I, I gotta say I have to defend any soundtrack with Soundgarden on it. So I'm gonna have to hold on to that because I think anything with Chris Cornell and Soundgarden is good. Um, but 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 it's interesting as an early 90s film, you kind of get those music moments dropped in, which is very classic early 90s. Um, but the thing that's interesting to me, and this may be a topic you're gonna bring up, Mike, but is the film doesn't actually do well. Like critics like it. But audiences did not find this film, at least until later. So, I mean, to me, it's always fascinating. Wasn't it kind of like that with Reservoir Dogs, though? Like, I mean, I and it's funny that you say that you watched that in Kansas City at that art house theater. So I was in Kansas City when it came out because I live in Kansas. And there was a journalism convention that was up there at the time. And all of these people are talking about this movie, Reservoir Dogs. This is before I know Tarantino. I have no fucking clue what they're talking about, which is funny because later on, I'm like, holy shit, you know, and. Because <laughs> I write all these books about, and actually I have a fourth that's kind of related coming out called Generation Tarantino, which is just about, but it tied in enough that, you know, I could sell it. But but it's just funny, you know, because we almost see it at the same place, I guess. Yeah, it's funny. I was, it's not that good of a story now no, that I get there. It, was, it, was art it sounded house, good in my head. Me, my memory was at the art house place in Overland Park, Kansas, and saw that. But True Romance, I saw in a regular sort of multiplex probably either in kansas city or somewhere in one of the suburbs raytown or someplace like that so where are you from i'm actually from texas but i lived in warrensburg missouri for a while which is probably where i was when when these things were coming out um but it's interesting you know that 
true romance. I feel like you're exactly right. Reservoir Dogs kind of built, but it was a film made to build. Like it came, you know, very, very indie, kind of crawls its way up from the kind of Sundance circuit up. But True Romance was kind of dropped out as if it was going to be a bigger film and just doesn't find its audience. And so to me, what's fascinating about that is, you know, you have Christian Slater who has some cachet. I mean, this is post Heathers. This is Christian Slater at the height of Christian Slater Ness. Um, Tarantino's at least got indie buzz. Tony Scott is coming off of what, like Top Gun. And, you know, I mean, from the director of Top Gun, because it's a. And then the audiences get there and they go, this isn't Top Gun. I don't see a jet anywhere. Where's, you know, Val from the neck down, right? <laughs> I guess they wouldn't even know. So it's interesting to me is like, how does a film like this that now we look back is to me, I look back on and think is very quintessential early 90s. Like, yeah, that was what was happening in cinema. I mean, probably Andy, you, you talk about this. Like, if you want to boil down that era, this is one of those films that would be a defining film of the era. and yet audiences in that year did not show up no no which was odd and i never even realized that they had stayed away in droves just because i was so into this movie that i was like well of course everybody likes this movie and when i doing my research and i'm just like didn't do well all the reviews could do is even if they liked it all they could do is talk about the violence and i'm just like yeah i guess you know this was pretty ultra violent for the time but Compared to even today's stuff, I'm just like, yeah, this is rather tame. One thing I thought was kind of funny that ties in a little bit was, and I had talked about producer Bill Unger. Um, I had the, I did have the pleasure of interviewing him and Scott and Tarantino and all these people at different times. But Unger, I got to talk to for a long time. And one of the things that Unger was telling me was that um, Reservoir Dogs, when the treatment had come through his office and when his reader had read it, uh, you know, they bashed the shit out of it. So, and, and that was kind of universal. So when Unger talks to Tarantino, he's like, you know, they're talking about Reservoir Dogs. And he's like, where is this? Blah, blah, blah. And so he goes and he digs it out and he reads it. And at one time I had a copy of it. It's just trashes it from beginning to end because it was different. It wasn't, but it also was not mainstream. I mean, true romance is more mainstream than Reservoir Dogs and True Romance isn't still isn't super mainstream. But I thought that was interesting, you know, and, and Unger was shocked. <laughs> well, it is weird how these paved the way for Pulp Fiction, because Pulp Fiction was so unconventional compared to anything else that was going on out there. Of course, we've seen fractured timelines before, but that really put it on the map. You know, that was like showing at your local multiplex and was like, okay, and yeah, the the use of the soundtrack, the amazing actors, everything that was going on with that. Like, yeah, do I have problems with Pulp Fiction? Sure. Yeah, heck yeah, I do. Do I watch it all the time? No, not really. Of all the Tarantino movies, I just pretty much stick with Reservoir Dogs, because past, uh, really, past Pulp Fiction, none of them stick with me. I'm just like, yeah, I'm okay if I never see Kill Bill again. See, I've gotten to the point, I know it's the it's the kind of hipster cool thing or whatever now to say Jackie Brown is the, but I, you know, I have fallen in love with Jackie Brown because when it came out in Christmas in 97, I went and I saw it and I said 97 and I thought, what the fuck is this at the time? Because I, like a lot of people, I wanted it to be sort of Pulp Fiction too. You know, I wanted it to be the same things, but Jackie Brown is so subtle and it's, it just is. It's this laid back, much more mature movie 
I do wonder, you know, if that movie had done better, if we'd have seen more movies like that, as opposed to Kill Bill, which goes way up over the top. And again, I have no problem with that. But I just I do wonder if we'd have seen more movies in that vein, because it's much more Elmore Leonard than or what we associate with Elmore Leonard than what we associate generally with Tarantino. I was okay with Jackie Brown, except for the fractured timeline at the end. I was just like, this is completely unnecessary. I really, you should, you've been the split yeah, screen you've been doing this linear the entire time. We don't need this nonlinear nonsense at the end here. Personally, I wish Tarantino had stopped after Reservoir Dogs. I think that would have, we would all culture would have been better off. Honestly, I'm sorry to say that I feel like that was good. And then Pulp Fiction was fine if a bit gimmicky. And ever since then, I think it's, to me, he's been chasing that dragon. And it's just been kind of the same film over and over again. That's So I'll accept all the hate. Kendall Phillips, you can find me online. Tell me how much you hate me. But yeah. Kendall, I'm right there with you. Ah, you guys are breaking my heart. <laughs> it's literally tied for my favorite movie with Goodfellas. And I don't know what that says about me because they're both these hyper macho movies but and they're totally different movies i'm just i'm not a fan of once upon a time in hollywood the hateful eight django unchained the glorious bastards death proof i think was one of the worst things i've ever seen in my life so yeah i mean kill bill was just like meh and that was it for me you know i once he was doing kill bill and just being all cutesy you know q written by q and you i'm just like fuck off you know, like get, get somebody to do your opening credits the proper way. Get some real filmmakers in here because this just isn't it doing it for me. Yeah, I'm with you. I feel like it's been endlessly self-indulgent. And what kills me is I'm pretty vocal about not liking Tarantino. And every new film comes out. Everyone I know comes and tells me, no, no, this one's different. You got to go see once. So of course I go because I'm a sucker and I sit down and watch once upon a time in Hollywood. And I think, God damn it. This is the same stinking self-indulgent movie. How did I get tricked again? One thing I was going to point out was I'm going back a hair here before, <laughs> before all the Tarantino hate, but, and which is fine. But, you know, we were talking about the fractured storyline of Pulp Fiction and how we'd seen fractured storylines up to that point but not in that way in the United States, right? And what I think is funny is that there were, and there still are some people who don't understand it. They're like, how is he still alive? I thought he died. And at least at that point, I think that that really spoke volumes to the fact that we just hadn't seen that much here. Now, people that now think it are just, I'm sorry if you're listening, but you're just fucking stupid. But (laughs) but at that time i get it there were people that didn't understand the first mission impossible you know they just were like well how does this happen you know denzel washington famously was just like can somebody explain mission impossible to me and i'm like you are an, an intelligent man sir why are you having problems with this so i tried like hell to get an interview for this and surprise surprise nobody wants to talk to mike white about true romance (laughs) nobody no one i approached wanted to talk to me about this so there are no interviews on this episode folks but uh, let's go ahead we're going to take a break and we'll be back right after we play these brief messages buy or rent transformers rise of the beasts on digital today optimus prime and the autobots team up with a powerful faction of transformers known as the maximals to save earth in this adrenaline-fueled adventure 
Get over an hour of bonus content when you buy on digital. Available at participating retailers. Rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. All right, we are back and we were talking about true romance. And I mentioned earlier there is a fan edit of this where you can actually see it more closely to that Tarantino timeline. And I did try watching that today, but it's big chunks. You know, you've got this chunk, this chunk, this chunk, and they're just in different order. And being so familiar, I think, Kendall, you said this earlier, I'm so familiar with what I've seen before that I can't really divorce myself from it and come at it with new, fresh eyes. I probably should have watched the fan at it first, just because the last time I had seen True Romance was probably 96 or something like that. I've never actually watched because I don't really desire to watch it. I'd had people tell me about it, of course, but does it say like chapter one or two it, or it gives how does you that the titles and it says Motor City. And then I can't remember what the next one is, but yeah, that's very true to even the revised screenplays would have titles of, you know, where they're at type of thing. So the first chapter starts and it's Motor City, but it doesn't say chapter one Motor City. Yeah, it's not as obnoxious as his later films. And I know he was even doing that in Reservoir Dogs and just, you know, here's this, you know, and it works for me in Reservoir Dogs. Everything, just about everything for me works in Reservoir Dogs. You know, it's a tiny thing that annoys me. It's tiny, tiny. I don't know why it annoys me, but it always annoys me when I watch Reservoir Dogs is we have that long scene down the hall where we're watching Harvey Keitel in the bathroom, right? And he holds the lighter up three inches in front of the cigarette. He doesn't really light it, but it's pretended like he is. And then he's acting like, but we can see it's not lit and there's no smoke. And I'm sure that's, look, again, I'm defending Tarantino. I'm sure that's some shit on Harvey Keitel. I don't know, but I, I think I've seen him smoke in other movies. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, so I don't know. It's just weird. Like, I'm sure like in that, I'm sure in Bad Lieutenant, he smokes. He does everything else. The funny thing is I know exactly what you mean. And yeah. I knew you would. I knew you would. And yeah, it's hilarious. I've always been like, was Harvey Keitel trying to quit smoking at this point? Like, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, it was a low budget. They couldn't afford a whole pack of cigarettes. Right. So they had to keep that one. <laughs> we keep could that one preserve the right. cigarette. Maybe it was a continuity thing, though, that, well, no, there's no cut. So, kid, I don't know. It was funny because last week we talked about Pretty Poison, and which predates Badlands, but there's a lot of similar things in there. This whole idea of the Tuesday Weld character killing her own mother and even the way that it's shot is very similar to Badlands. And it just, it's like our two couples on the run movies two weeks in a row here, which is pretty hilarious to me. And yeah, just the, this whole idea of the couple on the run. I mean, it's such a classic, I won't even say a classic American thing because they're obviously, you know, as soon as I say that, I think of breathless. So I think of, of French films immediately. Um, but yeah, just this idea of the couple on the run trying to get out, trying to get some money. I mean, really, when you think about it, this whole film could be based on. Steve Miller groups take the money and run. You know, it's it's pretty similar. Yeah, it feels very much an homage to that film noir era, and then the sort of French New Wave that kind of re reformats that and makes it younger and more exciting. And so it does feel like, and that's I think part of why this film 
again, when I think back to the early 90s, I would pick this as a film that stands in for that moment because it is in the midst of that kind of revival of the, I guess, kind of neo-noir moment where you get, you know, couple on the young couple on the run in a world full of bad guys. And then they have to, you know, learn the ways of the street. And that, that was to me, that's kind of Tarantino, right? I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like, you got to learn the lessons of the street to survive the streets. Well, it's funny because the movie that Oldman was on right before this was Romeo is bleeding, which was another great neo-noir. And that one was, I mean, the femme fatale in that Lena Olin was just off the chain. She was just amazingly bad to the point where she like cuts off her own fucking arm to, to spike Gary Oldman. I mean, I could be wrong on that. I haven't seen it since 92, but I feel like I really need to revisit that movie. You know, one thing I will say about the movie that is, is going to sound a little negative, uh, and I almost wrote an essay about it in my uh, my book, uh, Pulp Cinema, that's coming out this next year. But again, I like to, you know, kind of stay pro-Tarantino. But this one, I do think that um, it's kind of like an incel fantasy. One thing, the editor wouldn't go for it because... Uh, he said incels are only online or whatever. I think we've kind of moved beyond that with the definition because people, you know, talk about, again, the lonely men, the lonely man. Maybe he's kind of sexist the way that he looks at women, definitely. Um, and so I think that we really could see Clarence says, I was going to write an essay about it because I really do think that, you know, because, I mean, people were worried about Joker and all these things. And, you know, but I think that this is sort of an early in cell fantasy because everything caters to him and you can't have a woman without her being hot right like even when you have this this woman that's even when she's bloody the blood is in just perfect places for her to be sexy and you know that kind of thing and she has nice feet let's not forget but I, I think the other thing i mean to me totally agree i think that's part of what really jars about this movie now is it is such a kind of incel masculine fantasy wedded with that peck and paw violence as redemption, violence as masculinity. So it's it is Clarence's decision to move to a level of violence um, that that makes him a man, that gets him his happy ending, but also creates a really disturbing vision of American masculinity that I suppose is kind of on the news every day these days. So, well, at least Clarence didn't go to church or Walmart or something and shoot everybody up. It was really sad to listen to Tarantino's commentary on the DVD because he's just like, I was 25, didn't have a girlfriend, and I just really wanted a girlfriend. And he just keeps talking about it, just like, oh, she'd be the perfect girlfriend. And, you know, you want a girl who's your buddy and you want to be able to watch movies with her. And I'm just like, yeah, it sounds like a really shitty time of your life. Like, I know that he had a lot of, you know, social anxiety and social problems, but yeah, I just, I, I don't tend to feel bad for Tarantino, but he just sounded like such a sad sack that I was like, all right, yeah, I guess I kind of feel bad for you. And it's, and it's all there on the screen for us to see his sad, kind of slightly pathetic fantasy of the way the world should be, you know, but again, he's made billions of dollars. So what can I say? Another thing I will throw in real quick is that part about I'd fuck Elvis, right? Like when he's talking about if I had to fuck a guy, absolutely had to fuck a guy, I'd fuck Elvis. And what was interesting was that, um, one of the guys that owned Video Archives, Dennis Humbert, was telling me, uh, I'm trying to remember it specifically, it seemed like there was a guy that he played cards with or something, and Tarantino had taken some stuff that he had said and used it as dialogue. And one of them, I think, was that somewhere it, this I'd fuck Elvis thing came from a conversation that involved Dennis Humbert. 
I don't know. I mean, Dennis seemed like a little bit of a blowhard, you know, like it could have been a made up thing. I don't know. He's gone too now. But then somebody else was telling me that there's a line that's almost the same in another older movie, but it's about, I can't remember who it's about though. It's a different icon. There's a line in the musical Hair, which is where I assume this was from, where the army recruiter asks him, are you gay? And he says, well, I wouldn't kick Mick Jagger out of bed, but no, I'm not gay. And when I heard the Elvis line, I sort of, that was my immediate association was, oh, this is a kind of riff on the, I wouldn't kick Mick Jagger out of bed, which in fairness, he would, let's be honest. But um yeah, and he was copying to taking the whole thing about the Moors and the Sicilians from like a friend of his mother's, her friend or her brother, Big D, I guess his name is, and then the Sam Jackson character is named after this guy. And you can definitely tell that there was an audio edit when he says the name of his mother's friend. They really there's a hard clip to cut off her last name. <laughs> he wasn't thinking about legalities when he was doing that commentary and the DVD of this, like I, I have the Blu-ray. I have definitely bought the DVD just in preparation of this because it's got so many extras on it to the point where there are, I won't say scene specific audio commentaries, but there's, I mean, basically you watch the movie and here's Dennis Hopper doing the commentary for all the scenes that he's in. You get Brad Pitt doing commentary. You get Michael Rappaport does commentary for probably half an hour, 45 minutes. It's like all of the Dick Ritchie stuff. And like, obviously Dick Ritchie is there in the entire last third of the movie. So he is there. And I'm, I do have to say, I'm very happy that Dick Ritchie escapes and is able to now pursue, pursue his whole acting career and go and be on the new TJ Hooker. Hooker. What's funny about that though, is that his, when he goes in auditions, it's like the shittiest audition ever. Like, it's like, get him the fuck off there. He's on the hood or whatever. And it's so bad and intentionally bad. But then we're supposed to believe then he gets the part. Like, really odd to me. Yeah, I think the only person that could have acted that worse would be Tarantino himself. I am just so glad that Tarantino doesn't have a cameo in this. Because that has run out of steam very quickly. I will still contend that he was very good in... He's from Dust Till Dawn. From Dust Till Dawn. I haven't really cared for his performances yeah. in others, but he, he's very he's good. He's very Dust good in From Dust Till Dawn. I will agree with you 100%. And then you take that and compare it to that train wreck that he did in Django Unchained. Holy shit. What the fuck was that? This is what happens when a director has a little too much success. I think this is always the issue. Ari Aster, huge success with Midsummer. They say, here's a ton of money, do whatever you want, and we get Bo is Afraid. So whatever you do. Have you seen Bo is Afraid? I, I have not. I, I hear not really bad that. things. Yeah. I was just... I'm a terrified of watching it. So I hated Hereditary because I loved it. And then when the guy was crawling on the ceiling like Spider-Man, I thought, what the hell is this? This is like a Monty Python skit now. So this is not a horror movie. Midsummer, I like, but yeah. So I like the decapitation thing in her editing just because holy fuck. But then that first two acts are great. First two acts, I'm I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. And then it just goes wonko. And I it seems to me like at least the trailers and the reviews are that Bo is afraid is the entirety of that wacko third act stretched out over three hours. I got other things to do. So the other thing that I want to say about true romance before we sign off here is just the scene in the elevator that's still irks me that whole thing of him just pulling that gun on Bronson Pinchot and just because it doesn't it doesn't do anything 
really, you could cut that whole scene out and it wouldn't add or take away anything. I really like the cops' reactions, though. I think it's funny, you know, when he's, he's like, he's going to do it. He's a crazy motherfucker. Now, would the cops really just, and then because they're joking, and then they just turn so serious. And I mean, I think that was kind of fun. I don't know. I like that, but. I like their reaction. I think the comedy side, but I think I'll probably end up siding with Mike as much as I thought it was funny. It does reinforce this like violence is inconsequential. And so, but, and that's the problem for me, ultimately in true romance, is that all of that really bloody final moments where pretty much everybody dies is inconsequential because, you know, our lovers get away. And it doesn't matter that everybody else gets shot and dies in the midst of absolutely pointless cocaine bust. Um, it's violence is fine as long as it gets you the girl. And so ultimately, I guess Quentin got his girlfriend. And so that's cool. <laughs> I will say the we're talking about the elevator scene. I think, though, that one thing that it's very good at is that it lures us into thinking this is light still. Right. And then all of a sudden, that's the end of funny. I can't remember anything funny after that. Like, it seems like that's it when it just changes tone and gets darker and darker and dark. like it's a little dark. And then, wow, everyone's getting fucked up and shot and dead. As dark as the ending is, it doesn't really have consequences, right? I mean, because ultimately our two main characters get out. We don't really care that much about anybody who's died. I mean, you know, it, which is sad to say, but even when, you know, Ken dies, it's kind of slightly isn't played in that dark way that would make us question our enjoyment of the rest. I mean, I think there are films that play out light violence and give us consequences that make us feel uncomfortable about the, what we've Although, done. Although in the original version, Clarence dies, which so might have which might have right? changed things. Maybe there would be a way of turning that to a point where we would walk away from the film saying, maybe all that violence I enjoyed was not quite so nice. But we get our happy ending. We get our child named Elvis, and everybody walks away happy, except all the people that got shot. But all right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Hi, my name's David Byrne, and I made a movie about a bunch of people in Virgil, Texas. David, relax, relax. We need to look up into the camera. <laughs> They're getting ready for the 150th anniversary of their state. They're calling it a celebration of specialness. Something's happening here, all right. The world is changing. It's created confusion and chaos. Do you run out of Kleenex, paper towels, and toilet paper at the same time? What time is it? No time to look back. <laughs> I want someone to share my life. Marriage is a natural thing, and I'm a natural man. I love the women. Hey, there's more to life than this job. Hello, I'm Lewis Fine, and I'm looking for matrimony with a capital M. Yep, it's fancy driving, all right. Not only driving, but parking. Bunch of maniacs out there. You know how hot dogs come ten to a pack, and buns in packs of eight or twelve? You gotta buy nine packs to make them all match up. That's what I'm talking about.
this place is completely normal. Anyway. Well, if this is being nuts, then I don't ever want to be sane. That's right, we're going from true romance to true stories. And until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Andrew and Kendall. So, Kendall, what have you been up to lately, sir? So, uh, we're continuing to host my own little podcast. It's called Pop Life. It's produced by through WAER. We're out going through National Public Radio. We uh, have uh, great interviews about pop culture. So, in May, we have a fabulous series called The Academy Beyond the Awards, where we're talking to some of the, the leaders of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the director of the Academy Museum of the Film Archive their document archives. So if people are interested in getting behind the scenes with pop culture, check us out at Pop Life. And Andy, how about yourself? That Watermelon Man book finally dropped. I've got a book on Watermelon Man. There's an oral history of the room coming out in December. Uh, and then for future, the books I'm working on are both for applause. Um, I've got one I'm excited about, The Taking of NYC, which is about New York-based crime films of 1970s. And there were so many great ones. I'm trying to do original interviews for every piece, which is there's 69 movies. Uh, that's a lot. And then the other one is Generation Tarantino, which we talked about earlier, which is just about the 90s film movement and and where those people have all gone and come. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear me more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available over at weirdingwemedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. A little bit of tear let me down Spoil my act as a clown I had it made up not to make a frown But a little bit of tear let me down When you said you were leaving tomorrow That today was our last day I said there'd be no sorrow That I'd laugh when you walked away But a little bit of tear let me down Spoiled my act as a clown I had it made up not to make a frown But a little bit of tear let me down I said I'd laugh when you left me Pull a funny as you went out the door That I'd have another one waiting And I'd wave goodbye as you go Spoiled my act as a clown I had it made up not to make a frown But a little bit of tear let me down Everything went like I planned it And I really put on quite a show In my heart I felt I could stand it Till you walked with your grip through the door Then a little bit of tear let me down Spoiled my act as a clown I had it made up not to make a frown Oh, but a little bit of tear let me down A little bit of tear let me down